It's the morning of the final. Well, actually, it is the morning of the quarterfinal. And uh, by that, Tom means that this, the Surf Trip Nightmares special, is going to be sliced and diced into two episodes. The reason being, we simply had so much content. And to help us gather, collate, evaluate, and rate, we've invited a friend of the show in to help us as a guest presenter this week. Yeah, a massive range of stories to pick our way through here. Um, some of them are absolutely downright hilarious. Some of them are legendary. Should warn you that a couple of them are quite disturbing in places as well. There is a suitable dose of reality that would accompany any project like this. So, you know, you have been warned there. Uh, far and wide range of places, uh, contributors from all over Wales and beyond. We're pretty proud of this collection and it's a real chance to amuse yourselves and get food for thought. Absolutely. And without further ado, let's get into the quarterfinals. Part one of Crest's Surf Trip Nightmares. It's mostly going to be Indonesia to start with. With 17,000 islands, would a production like this be complete without a lengthy exploration of that archipelago's role in surf travel? And we'll also recap previous guest tales, setting up criteria and a leaderboard for the Crest's Surf Trip Gone Wrong Awards. First off then, because there's so much disaster to go through, we're going to focus our introductions solely on the newest addition to the team and we're going to make it purely factual too uh, not that the other intros weren't factual mind so i'm tom anderson and you're also hearing the dulcet tones of my regular co-host robert webster blythe and for this two-part special i am delighted also to be joined by two-time european longboard champion elliot dudley who's recently returned to the uk fresh off his own dream surf trip to be honest, apart from arriving back in the UK, it was a pretty epic trip. Where did you go again? Um, so we started off in South America, um, started in Colombia, made our way um, down through what is actually a much bigger continent than the, um, the, the map would imply. Um, so we went through uh, Ecuador, Peru, uh, went to Bolivia, Chile, uh, ended in Argentina. Um, from there, we went to New Zealand. Um, and spent three months in New Zealand. And from New Zealand, then we went to Australia, which was where we sadly had to end our trip um, following the sort of COVID-19 um, global pandemic nightmare. Where else did you have on the itinerary then? We had, when we got home, we probably had another month and a half left in Australia. Um, from there, we were supposed to be going, uh, flying to Singapore. Um, and we had kind of a pretty pretty loose plan really there depending on on sort of uh kind of swell conditions that kind of thing but we were going to do a little bit of spend a little bit of time doing the kind of uh the backpacker trail through thailand cambodia vietnam um and then once that was kind of ticked off the list we were going to spend some time in indonesia um ironically the big plan was to go to g-land um and then the the world surf league quite inconsiderately decided to organize an event there for the first time in God knows how long. So our, our plan of getting perfect G-Land to ourselves had kind of had been blown out of the water, although actually I think it could be back on again now with the current situation. So every cloud has a, a silver lining once we once we can leave the country again. 
Yeah, well, you're going to be in good company for part two, actually, because of this uh, episode, because we've got an interview with somebody who was both locked down and repatriated from Peru. So, uh, so talking about having you know travel plans cut short. Um, yeah, and Richard, who we interviewed in part two, was on that flight, which uh, the tabloids like to paint as one of the proper hell experiences of the crisis. And indeed, let's start there with Elliot. COVID-19 is, of course, like it or not, the event which sparked the whole Surf Trip Nightmares project. With lockdowns and quarantines, as well as serious instability in the travel and transportation industries, we figured this was a good way of laughing off the fact that travel remains off the cards for a while yet. Yeah, who misses Surf Trips? Not us. That was the initial mantra. Uh, But it's become something bigger now. We were inundated with great tales And we realise that a lot of these disasters actually give people in the surf community a good deal of joy in the telling of them. Uh, And I suppose joy in the, uh, there was that German word, schadenfreude. So um, yeah, Elliot, you are definitely the perfect start there then. Um, So you, when did you learn that you were going to have to come back from Australia and how did you learn it? Um, To be honest, it was kind of a, it felt like in the end, it was a case of delay in the inevitable. Um, we sort of were in a bit of a bubble really in Australia. Um, you know, as, as we, you probably saw in the UK, they weren't, um, affected anywhere near, uh, as badly as the rest of the world, especially Europe. Um, so for a long time, we just kind of, you know, we thought, oh, we'll, we'll work our way up the coast, uh, as far as we, as far as we can and see, sort of see how far we get really. And fingers crossed, um, you know, there's been other sort of potential pandemics in the past, you know, particularly SARS in 2003. We just thought it was probably going to go the way of that, really, at, at, at sort of at the beginning. Um, so, you know, we, we managed to get through Melbourne, um, did Adelaide, Melbourne. It was kind of when they they cancelled um, the Melbourne Grand Prix on the morning. That was our kind of the real wake-up call. Um, that was when we knew something serious was was a yeah, foot. That's, that's a lot of money um, they by doing that isn't it yeah and i mean it was literally it was you know um the aussies don't mince their words um they were in uproar over that um and it you know literally people were queuing up to get into the arena um, or what sort of the the track i guess you'd call it um on the morning when they cancelled it so by that point we realized that they were taking things quite seriously um but ultimately we not you know, before having to come back um not really no to be honest we I don't know how um, receptive the Australians would have been to a kind of full lockdown scenario um, that we, you know, like we had in the UK, for example. So um, they did have, you know, similar measures in terms of social distancing. You know, you couldn't have gatherings of more than 10 people. But even before we left day to day, things were pretty similar um, to how they would always be. People were surfing. Um, The big story that you would have seen on the media um, in the UK was the closing of Bondi Beach. but that was probably the only beach that I'd say had a hard closure. Um, the rest of them, um, when they say they were closed, all they actually meant was you couldn't sit down. So providing you were walking, running or surfing, you were the beaches were completely open to everyone. Um, the day we left, we were in Manly and there was, you know, the, there was a hundred people in the water. There was people jogging and having a great time. You could get a takeaway coffee. Um, and that's as bad as it got there. So, you know, you know, we won't get into the sort of the, the ins and outs, the epidemiology of it and the, you know, who did who did what best. But and then you uh, got crammed like sardines into a plane and uh, that wasn't so ideal. 
Yeah, it was an interesting one. We were sitting in Sydney Airport, you know, on you know, you normally go to an airport like that and there's, you know, five hundred flights a day and you you go in and you walk in and on the screen there's like three flights and uh, one of them was ours to to um with Qatar uh, um, Airlines to Doha. And um, you know, we we sat down and someone actually came and sat next to us. It was quite funny, it was an an elderly chap sat right next to us and these immigration kind of officers came over and said, so, you, you know, you need to keep two meters. And it was all a bit sort of serious. Um, and it was the same, you know, all the way through the airport checking in. And then you got on the plane and obviously there were so few flights going that they were all absolutely rammed full because everyone was trying to get home. So you'd gone from being two meters apart for the whole two hours you're in the airport. And then uh, all of a sudden you're sitting less than 10 centimeters away from someone uh for 24 hours so it did make it a bit of a mockery of it uh, if i'm honest now quite a few parts of that experience match up with some of the other tales that we've got coming down the line so i'm sure we'll probably hear a few more details about that from you but i just noticed going past in the background there um that was marie claire then wasn't it it is yeah she's uh she's gonna join us for a chat I yeah let's, let's hook her in and see what she's got to say about it uh Oh, yeah. Elliot can't hear me now. He's got the headphones off. I can say anything about him. He won't know. Hey, how's it going? All right? Yeah, good, thanks. Well, it's sort of good to see you, but obviously I'd rather, you know, that you were still in Australia because, you know, we were just really enjoying all those Instagrams from you lot as it was dark and cold here, you know? Good trip? Uh, Yeah, it was blooming amazing up until the point that we came home, obviously. What was your favourite wave? Um... There were some that were great waves, but probably a little bit too big or heavy for me. I would say New Zealand for the waves, um, Australia for water temperature. <laughs> um, it's a tough one. Do you know the place that we got stuck, Ulladilla, um, it's about three hours south of Sydney. They were super, super, super fun waves. They're probably really? my favourite just because we really got to know the area. So... For me, turning up at a spot, I've never surfed it before. Elliot has surfed a lot of different type of types of waves, so he can sort of get in and he knows how to judge the area, judge the wave. But for me, I probably need a few surfs in one spot to really get the knack of it. Um, and you managed to there. Yeah, and, and there we were there for about two or three two or three weeks on that stretch of coast, and they were all pretty similar beach breaks. So, yeah, I got to grips with it and, and had a lot of fun on that stretch. And I saw you spent a bit of time at Fonga Matar as well, surfing the bar. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. That's a great place to talk about on Crest Surfcast because uh, Robert Webster Blythe, uh, speaking of nightmare surf trips, has been uh, chinned by one of the locals in the water there for taking too many waves, haven't you? I've heard that story. Yeah, he wasn't a local though. I should point that out. In fact, upon arriving on the beach post being punched mid-wave, uh, one of the locals asked me what the waves were like. And I said, it's oh, it pumping, but I just got punched. And he went, he said, I do the punching around here. And he <laughs> made me, then he made me describe the guy that punched me and he went out to sort him out. I totally understand that because at low tide, that well, bar is pretty him. aggressive. <laughs> yeah. I only surfed high tide because it was fat and none of the shortboarders would surf it. It's like a mini mandaka that wave is, isn't it? Anyway, we're here to to sort of talk about surf trips going wrong though, Marie Claire. So, so Tell us, like, and make it sound bad, please, because Elliot tried to make it sound all kind of idyllic still. How bad was it getting cut off and flown home uh, in the middle uh, of a pandemic? Yeah, so it, it was less than ideal. Um, I will say, though, being stuck in Australia during COVID was probably the luckiest part of our trip because we'd experienced a few 
um, civil unrest incidents during South America in, well, four countries in the end, it turned out to be. And I couldn't think of anywhere worse to be stuck. So Australia, yeah. I'd take that. <laughs> yeah, there was a, there were a load of strikes, weren't there, when you were in oh. South America? Oh. Yeah, Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, and then uh, Chile as well. So I was oh. quite happy to get to New Zealand after all of that. And uh, I did also enjoy you putting a couple of the the internet trolls in their place because uh, the, the, you and Elliot were in the departure lounge, weren't you? And you got a bit of abuse off someone saying that it was travellers like you, the fault of travellers like you, that, that these diseases were spreading. And, and I thought you did a pretty good put down there. <laughs> anyway, putting the trolls down, that's good work. Yeah, that I think that could have happened at a worse time. We were sat in a Sydney airport departure lounge we didn't want to be there. The The UK government and the FCO were demanding us home. Um, and ScoMo, the, the prime minister in Australia, had effectively told anyone on, on a temporary visa to get out. So we, we were stuck bet- between a, like a rock and a hard place, really. Um, and we have been pretty much forced onto the, the plane by our travel insurance. Yeah. yeah. So for someone to then say, well, that we were causing it was a, yeah, it was a, tough pill to swallow <laughs> oh you did a good job anyway um well hopefully we'll have some waves to look forward to now that you guys are back anyway so um yeah thanks very much very welcome yeah and hopefully we'll see you in the water sooner rather than later there we go right well we need elliot back on the mic now because he's got the first proper link to read welcome back elliot i think he's checking himself out before sitting back down there isn't he Tough act to follow there. I, I'll give her that. And Tom, I, I should say that um, whilst uh, Elliot and Marie Claire were kind of locked down in Ulladulla, um, I had a few FaceTimes with them. And um, whilst Elliot disappeared off to the toilet or wherever he, he was going, Marie Claire would come on and go, oh my God, I'm fed. I'm sick to the back teeth of him. Apparently <laughs> lockdown in Australia was uh, was testing both their patients. I mean, lockdown will test anyone's patience, but when you're in the back of a of a <laughs> kind of eight foot by four foot camper van, it'll uh, it'll really yeah. test you. I I, en- I really enjoyed making it that much worse, though. Just stirring. Anywho, you were uh, you ready for your link, Al? Ready, ready to go. Right, we come now then to the first of our pre-recorded tales with listeners. This first one is the follow-up interview Tom did after Wayne Edward sent in that tale last week of a burn in Lagundry Bay in the island of Nias, just off Sumatra, and the so-called boomerang board. If you listen to Crest episode six with the shaper Luke Young, you'll have heard the intrigue we all had with this passing mention of a supposedly unlosable surfboard. Well, during that little window of the Northern European morning in which we align with Australia's waking hours, Tom got Wayne onto a video link and asked him to elaborate on both that wild trip to Lagundry Bay in 1978 and the surfboard which kept coming home. Welcome in a very special guest onto Crest here now. Uh, it's actually the evening where I'm talking to Wayne in uh, South Australia. Um, so honorary Welshman or Welsh by descent. Um, he came over here to visit Chirk Castle and now he's back home safely in South Australia, but still talking to me. It's Wayne. How are you doing, Wayne? Ah, great. Thanks, Tom. Good to hear from you. Yeah, you too. So we just had to get in touch to hear a bit more about this tale of going over to Lagundry Bay in the 70s and there not being anyone there and then one of the villages burning down and all of that. What uh, what, what year was it? 78, you said? Yeah, 78, yes. 
That was actually... Um, what happened? Well, we only heard rumours in Bali that there was actually any surf on Nias at all. And so these rumours, one New Zealand guy, Rod Crown and myself, decided we'd head up there and uh, see what was going on. But uh, it was a good adventure, but, of course, we got drenched on the boat on the way. Yeah, as we headed up the hill to go to the next village, um, we'd heard that they were actually cannibals. It was just rumours that the people were cannibals. And we were used to going to pretty remote villages and the whole village would come out and greet you, the children and the crowd, and then normally the crowd would part and the chief would come and visit you. But walking up to this village, there was only a couple of kids. And when we got into the village, they were called into the buildings, and which were longhouses. And uh, so we thought, what's going on here? And we're calling out, Salamat Sore, you know, good afternoon, hello. And not one person would come out. And then we saw the rock monoliths in the middle of the street. And some of those monoliths were, there, were for the young guys to jump over and prove their, you know, sort of initiation. But there's some that were actually cannibal tables that were on there as well. So for preparation of bodies. So we were, you know, a little bit concerned at that time. But we did lure people out. And in the end, we had a, a good time and, yeah, went down and slept on a platform because that's all there was there at those, in those days. Yeah. So a couple of healthy Australian and American surfers must have been quite tempting, though, for those cannibals. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sure we were probably pretty safe. It was just the unknown in those days. I mean, I know the first three guys there that went in there in, in 75, which is Kevin Lovett and John Giesel and Peter Troy, they stayed there and surfed it for that first year on their own. And later on, they didn't realise, but later on they realised they were being eyed off as a bit of protein, I think. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we appeased them because uh, all we had was rice every day. That's all you could get. And we brought a pig from the village and decided we needed protein so we couldn't eat much of it and gave the rest of the village. So I think that did them well. Of course, it's got to stay fresh, hasn't it? So they, they you yeah. keep the pig alive until the last minute before cooking. Yeah. Oh, there was absolutely no electricity, not one thing at that point of any sort of uh, Western civilization. not a sheet of iron or a glass window pane or anything. But then 10 years later, when I went back, it was just a totally different place. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the 10 years later thing then leads us into the bit of the story that you only kind of said as a sentence or two. Um, but you, you'd left a board in a lost one in Penang for 10 years. Yeah. Well, at that point, I'd been in Indonesia for three months and you, that was the limit of your visa. So you had to get out and come back in again. And everyone would do the Medan Penang flight because it was the cheapest possible flight to get get out. And so I left the surfboard there in a uh, Chinese um, Lozman sort of hotel. And I was planning to go straight back in again, but I got bad sea ulcers from surfing for three months in Indonesia. So I had no, no choice in the end to go back to Australia. So it was 10 years later that I went back there and I'd trip around the world. And I said to my wife, Donna, I'll go and see if I can find that surfboard. So we walked up and down the street to try and recognise the, the hotel. We found it in the end. And uh, I went up to the counter and we got a room and then I tried to describe the surfboard to this old Chinese guy. And I drew a picture of it and he didn't know what I was talking about, so I sort of gave up. And the next day he came back and he said, handbag, handbag. And I thought, no, not a handbag, surfboard, surfboard. So I thought, oh, this is not going to happen. But the next day he called me down to the cellar 
and sort of excited. And I thought, what's going on? I went down there and sure enough, under all these cane baskets and stuff, he pulled them all off. There was the surfboard 10 years later. So wow, the board bag, which my mother made for me uh, because she was a dressmaker, because in those days you couldn't buy a board bag, which is dust. And I picked up the surfboard and had a few white ants and borers in the stringer, but it was still there to that day. And, and did you I, ever ride any waves on it then? Uh, no, but my, no. After that, I just brought it back to Australia. I knew I had to keep it. Uh, but my son did. He went into a single fin competition uh, about 30 years later with it. And, uh, yeah. But it was funny. I said to this Chinese guy, I was with him going up to Nepal to do some trekking and coming back again. And he said, oh, you know, 10 years storage in my cellar, that was $10. I said, oh, okay, that's 10 Aussie dollars. I'm there. That's fair enough. Okay. Oh, we're, we're going away for 10 weeks. Can I leave it here again? And uh, he said to me, um, oh, yes, you can. And, and he said, $10. <laughs> I'm there, what, 10 years, $10, 10 weeks? I felt sure he thought I was going to leave it there for another 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Inflation, maybe. Oh, yeah, oh, he thought it was going to be 10 more years, did he? Yes, exactly. Anyway, it was cheap at any cost to have it stored for that long. So then once this board got back to Australia, it, you're calling it the boomerang board because it went missing again. Yeah, well, it was on the on the roof of my car and uh, it blew off at a place called Gulls Rock. And I realised after a while, so I went to go back and it wasn't on the side of the road. And only one car had uh, come the other way. And it did have a board in the back, so I figured, well, that's the end of that board. But it was two years later, I was going over to my local surf break, Chinaman's, and a mate of mine said, oh, isn't that your board? And I said, oh, yeah, it is. So I went up to this poor guy and said, that's my board. And he said, what do you mean? I'm there, well, it's my board. It blew off at Gold's Rock. And he said, oh, <laughs> fair enough. He was in his ready, ready to go for a surf and gave it back to me. So I was pretty grateful. But as I was walking off, I remembered, wait a sec, where's the board bag? And he said, oh, okay. So he went to the car and got the board bag for it as well. So, yeah. And then now it's uh, safe and sound and staying with you. Oh, yeah, I'll never get rid of that board. It's just, yeah. I've, I regret ever getting rid of my first couple of boards that I ever had, a five-foot-eight Wayne Lynch and a, another couple of boards. But after that board, I've never got rid of a board ever again after. I've just decided that's wow. it. So the garage is getting pretty full. There's about 28 boards in there. But in the end, yeah, every board's got a story. Anyone can look at their board. There's a ding. They remember where that ding happened, you know. Like, oh, yeah, that ding yeah. or, you know, a board – and you're associated with the place where you surfed. Oh, yeah, I surfed that here. Yeah. Wow. And this board also had a hole in the fin for a for a makeshift leg rope because they hadn't been invented then? Yeah, well, in the early days, you would just drill a hole through your fin and just put a piece of nylon cord and tie a handkerchief around your ankle. And when I think back now, because usually when you came in, you'd be 20 minutes trying to undo the knot because it'd just be pulled so tight. And now I realise how wow. dangerous that is. If you got wrapped around a rock or something, there was no releasing yourself from that leg rope. And then they went up market. You had a, a dog's collar and you put that on your ankle instead with a piece of nylon. And this board, I retrofitted a plug in it because they came out with the first leashes, which were just a piece of rubber on a piece of nylon rope. But, yeah, but that plug at Uluwatu, I surfed that board for two months at Uluwatu in that same trip, uh, never with any more than six people in the water on any day, right in the middle of the season, 
and uh, the plug got pulled. Every time the surf would end with the plug being pulled out through the bottom of the board, the side of the board, whatever. But, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, well, uh, thanks for that one, Wayne. Uh, I think we're going to be uh, asking you back on for a couple more of these stories because uh, there were a few other tasters in your story as well, one from Western Samoa and another one from Garajigan. So uh, thank yeah. you for your time on Crest, and we'll be speaking to you soon. No worries. Thanks, Tom. Good talking to you. Wow. That guy is a natural storyteller. Uh, I often think that they must teach um, telling surf tales uh, on the Australian curriculum because, I mean, they just every Aussie surfer you speak to, they literally they can tell a tall tale about a surf trip. I mean, they're amazing. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, where did you find him, Tom? Yeah, he's a perler, isn't he? Well, it, Wayne's got Welsh roots, see, so he's interested in all things Wales. Um, his son, Dylan, uh, well, in fact, I should teach Dylan how to pronounce his name in the Welsh way, his son, Dylan, a Welsh name again. It's actually learning Welsh right now because uh, he works as a geologist in the mines in Australia. And uh, there's less going on socially after the 12-hour shifts at the moment. So he's doing an online Welsh course. Apparently, he's got as far as, hello, how are you? And I like eating apples at the pub. But, you know, it's a start. Um, shows you what, again, the Aussie curriculum, if that's what they were. Well, maybe it was probably the Welsh curriculum, actually, isn't it? Between Hoffie, uh, so, yeah. Boiter, Avil, and a, and a Tavan. And a Tavan, that's it, yeah. Um <laughs> So yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, Aussie, <laughs> Aussies with Welsh roots. Um, yeah, Wayne's other son, Brett. Um, I don't, did either of you guys ever meet him when he was in the UK? He was a proper yeah, ripper. We were going to get him as a ringer for the Welsh Club, weren't we? Yes, yeah, we were trying to put him in as a ringer against Channel Coast at one point, but I don't think he was able to make <laughs> it for the, for the sword. Yeah, he's a, he, was, he was the South Oz, South Oz uh, champ at each junior age group, 14s, 16s, 18s, and then he was the state captain in the Aussie national titles um, you know, it's a team that included people like Dion uh, Atkinson, you know, the CT uh, surfer. And he did a few QS events while he was here in Europe before spending a couple of years in London. Um, and while Brett was in London, um, Wayne arranged for us to meet up with him because I'd met Wayne, first of all, in, uh, off Timor and straight away made a beeline for us like, you guys are Welsh. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up with meeting up with Brett. And we went for a trip to Lynmouth with him, uh, really stormy Lynmouth conditions. And that's a place we're going to hear about a bit more in part two of the show, actually. We certainly are. Uh, yeah. How, how is that for a tale? It's actually got a little add on, um, which we're going to hear, first of all, um, in which Wayne remembered just after we'd finished the interview. So I did hit record again for a minute and uh, it was worth it because uh, here's Wayne's Nias postscript. Uh Yes, well, we were far wiser when we went back to Nias 10 years later, so we decided when we get on the boat to go from Zabolga to Tuluk Delan that uh, we'd upgrade to a cabin. And, of course, the cabins are just the crew's quarters. So we decided we'd just give this crew member a bit more money and we get into the cabin, which was a double bunk. And uh, But what we didn't realise, the diesel exhaust pipe ran through the end of both of the bunks. So if you didn't get burnt by touching it, it was just the heat that was generated just made it so intense. There was no way you could stay in that cabin. So we decided we were going to have to go out to the deck, but uh, um, there was no room left on the deck if all the prime spots are gone. So well, there was only one thing. It was a table in the in the kitchen or in the, in the mess area, so we just slept on top of the table. But uh, when we woke up the next morning, it was sort of like we looked at everyone were getting up and it was like a murder scene from... Uh, some Scotland Yard investigation where there was uh, white chalk around these bodies where they'd been murdered and left on the ground. 
And then we, but it was in black. And we sort of thought, well, what's that? What's, what are these black outlines of figures on the ground? So we went and had a closer look and realised it was rat droppings. They're from the rats on the boat. <laughs> so my advice to anyone would be don't get a cabin, don't sleep on the deck, but if you can get that table, that's the go. <laughs> oh, Wayne, thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> no worries. I just think we should um, just bring him in to present the show. I mean, he, he is literally a natural. He, uh, yeah, fantastic yeah. storyteller. He's, he's got more up his sleeve as well. Um, so we, we plan to get something from Wayne for part two of this special next week. Um, let's talk about Nias first then, shall we? And, and like what it must have been like back then. Uh, do you guys ever wish you could have gone around Indo in those days or would the hardship of the travel have, have put you off? Uh, do, do you know, it's... have having heard it i just love the idea of surfing he, the, the the breaks he's naming are so iconic and the idea of surfing them with absolutely nobody in and it's not i mean occasionally in this day and age we can we can go to big name surf spread surf breaks or breaks that you know are like really really good and you might score them uncrowded or empty even if you're really really lucky but then it wasn't even a thought it was you know you're going to score them empty. You know you're going to score them uncrowded. It's just, it's a wild thought, isn't it? Yeah, you take it for granted, don't you? To the point where you may have even probably been looking for people to go with you. Um, do yeah. you know what I mean? It's got to, yeah. you're literally going that far off the beaten track that, um, you know, you'd at least want to share the risk a little bit or have someone to, to back Absolutely. you up if, if the worst it's, you know, case I think, scenario I think goes. even back in that, that kind of era as well, it wasn't even a case of having to go off the beaten track to experience that. I, I, some of the, like, dad stories, he he talks about having like just looking around or waiting in the beach car park for someone else to turn up before you go in can you like now you do the exact opposite you get there at a certain hour to avoid the crowds yeah and you're looking in you're looking into shore constantly to to make sure no one turns up <laughs> Elliot, there's a do you remember we were in um in Hossegore, uh, Easter I don't know the, the year maybe it was like, I don't know 2000 yeah it was 2008 I think 2008 and we scored perfect la gravia and there were two italians in and we ended up surfing the whole day time we, we did i think we did three surfs and we were coming out to change boards because they'd snapped to eat or to drink water and go or reapply sun cream and going back in and i just remember looking to the beach constantly hoping no one would come and no one came yeah and why was that then i don't know it's honestly one of the best days of my life surf wise I, I have actually had that happen at trestles and uh, then i found out afterwards that it was because they'd had loads of rain and no one in California goes surfing during what they call the runoff. Yeah. And so the water was full of disease from like the nearby yeah. San free nuclear stuff was washing. There's, through a there. there's a government warning, isn't there, for 72 hours after a bit of rainfall. It um, doesn't affect you being Welsh. It's funny, actually, with the Nias story, because um, I grew up sort of hearing stories in Nias. My, my uncle, um, Pete, uh, Pete Dudley, who uh, he actually got me into surfing. He went to Nias not long after probably Wayne went there. And um, and all the kind of iconic surfers that I've got of my uncle Pete uh, are of Lagundry Bay, and you know you just literally just see that perfect kind of right hand Pete coming in off the reef, and uh, yeah, literally all the, all the, his best surf shots that I've seen of him are all are all from Lagundry Bay, and it was kind of that mythical ferry journey, overnight ferry journey, and the the extreme risk of malaria, all that kind of stuff. The kind of mm-hmm. the kind of things mm-hmm. that you don't really have anymore. You know, there's you know you can yeah. even even in Indonesia you can pretty much fly everywhere or, or yeah, get a you, lu- can, you know yeah. more luxury option these days. So uh, no, it's cool to hear someone else's sort of uh, take on that trip. I also wonder whether Lagundry 
was slightly more perfect before that shelf slid with the because with the tsunami the, the shelf rose a little bit and it's now become a bit slabbier hasn't it but it used to be so sort of almond shaped i've been there twice but it was never both times i went there we were struggling to swell um so i mean i was there on kind of what i'd call longboard trips anyway um but they were very longboardable days really really good fun wave i mean it was super fun um but it seems to have that kind of mutant section now that it didn't used to have. Um, yeah. You know, you, you don't often see water angles of it, but when you do, you think, geez, that is like, that is a thick wave. Um, and I don't think that it was ever like that before, before the tsunami. I think it was a bit of, a, like you say, more of an almond shaped barrel. A roll in takeoff. Yeah. Yeah. How's that pit about the board as well? Wayne's well, that's the thing. Moving away from the wave itself, there's, there's a point in that story. Can I just say as well, I love Wayne's kind of nonchalance and, his casual kind of style of storytelling where he, he mentions things that would have your, your everyday traveler running for the hills. And yeah, he just like he's got to go home because passing. he had bad sea ulcers. It's like, uh, that's yeah, terrible we, bad yeah. sea ulcers that send well, we you home. Turned up and there was, there was a rock for the locals to jump over and also a, uh, a table to carve up human bodies on so we can eat them. <laughs> but there, there's a fun, funny point in that story as well. I love the, uh, the mention of the, the board bag that upon touching it turned to dust. We, so the, um, for, we've got this like garage full of surfboards from when dad owned the surf shop in Porthcawl and it's, it's like a crypt. I call it the crypt. And there are, there's, I don't know, there must be like 30 surfboards in there. And again, they're covered in these like handmade homemade board bags. And as soon as I touched the first one, it did exactly, exactly that. It just turned to dust. It's like the, the skeletons in Indiana Jones. Something out of Indiana them, Jones. Yeah, exactly. They go poof and they become dust. I love that bit. Right, I reckon it's time to introduce this criteria then, right? So let's 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 uh, let's put Wayne on the leaderboard. I got my pen and paper here now. Right? I've, I've got a theory about this. I think Elliot's going to be very generous with this because Wayne also mentions holding onto surfboards, and that's something we mentioned in the, the <laughs> Luke Young yeah. podcast. Tom, right? That I haven't sold ever sold a board of my own, but I know. Yeah, uh, Wayne did. mentioned owning 28 surfboards. Well, well I, know I Elliot, did, the... Elliot did a count up the other day of his, and he's got oh, no. he had 35 in his parents' house alone. Wow. <laughs> I, I reckon that under the criteria I've devised, Wayne is going to struggle a little bit until he brings his other stories in. Because um, what I'm going for is there's a scale of 1 to 15, right? And uh, I'm going to divide that into three separate scores out of five, right? And the three criteria are score out of five for lost waves. So, you know, for this surf trip nightmare, did you miss out on waves? Yeah. Then which, a score out of five for really hardship. Do. Exactly. Then a score out of five for the hardship and suffering. Uh, and then a score for the extent to which this tale has legs. Like, is it a, is it a fun one to tell and hear? Is it one that's going to do the rounds? Does it do the rounds? Uh, and so that's going to be out of five too. So in this light, I am suggesting Wayne gets a zero for Lost Waves, that yeah. he gets a five for Hardship, and that he gets a five for Tale with Legs. What do you guys reckon? Yeah. I, I think it's fair enough. I mean, uh, sleeping on a on a table in front of Lagundry Bay. I mean, that's pretty hardcore, you know. Um, yeah. I'm uh, I'm going to do a Bob Blythe on this and say you <laughs> can bring never the scale down. Yeah, you can never award a perfect a perfect uh, score. So I can. Well, this I is an imperfect say, ten, though, isn't it? Because well, it's ten out of fifteen. It is. However, you've awarded perfect scores for hardship and tail with legs. So, All right. So you want to give him eight, do you? I want to give him eight. I want to give it four All for right. hardship or for tail right, with fine. legs. Right, Wayne Edwards goes into the leaderboard with uh, eight then. So uh, Wayne is both top and bottom of the leaderboard at this stage in the show. Um, great. 
let's uh, let's move on. Rob has got our next one. Gary Lewis. Uh, this next tale is from Gary Lewis, a legend of uh, Welsh surfing, particularly the Porthcawl scene. Um, and if Porthcawl points firing, or if it's if indeed there's a wave at all, you can expect to find Gary in there on any given day. And he sent in this, well, quite frankly, a belter of a story. And I'm going to uh, to read it out now. I, I'll point out, you won't find him in the point at the moment because he's been stuck in Saudi because of the lockdown. And uh, I'm delighted about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Gary works uh, in the, the oil fields out there and he's currently stuck there. However, uh, listeners might remember Gary from his story of uh, the camper rolling backwards off the steps at Anchor Point in Morocco. But this is his uh, second offering and he's titled it quite aptly, A Weekend in the Mentawis. Well, now, I guess the title of the story sort of gives it uh, gives away the plot of my t- planned 10-day, once-in-a-lifetime boat trip to the Mentawi Islands. Like most surfers from the 90s onwards, I'd been dreaming of a trip to the playgrounds area of the island chain ever since seeing the first footage of Slater & Co. on the Indies Trader some 20-odd years ago. Many years later, all the stars finally aligned and I found myself heading south for the trip of a lifetime. I'd even ordered a shiny new 6-6 step-up that was unsullied by Rest Bay, despite Rhino's theories of breaking an Indo board in in two-foot mush. At the time, my only thoughts on whether a board would work or not were mainly based around the correct decal placement and nice colours. We decided to meet in a bar the night before and stay there throughout the night to ensure that nobody would sleep in for our early departure or become dehydrated for the upcoming journey. <laughs> Loading the board into the van is not normally considered a high-risk activity, but that's exactly when the trip started to go wrong for one particular individual. Paul, tall Paul Donovan, a local surfer, was at the business end of the operation when somebody accidentally stood on one of his flip-flops, causing him to lose balance and fall unceremoniously into the back of the van. No big deal, you'd think, but the groan that accompanied the innocuous stumble did seem a tad out of proportion. His back had gone, big time, and not just a niggle, His whole upper torso was physically out of kilter from his hips, and it didn't look good at all. It was like the top half of his body had been removed and glued back together at an angle. Anyway, we collectively came to the conclusion that massive amounts of painkillers, muscle relaxant, and more beers would more than likely see him through the upcoming 20 hours of travel, by which time, of course, he'd have hopefully healed himself. Fast forward 20 hours, and we'd emptied half the pharmacies of our departure town of Padang, for what looked like painkillers and anti-inflammatories. As the sun set, we were finally motoring towards the outer islands, a building swell under our bows. First light and we were moored in between tropical palm-fringed islands with lefts and rights pouring across the reefs. It wasn't too crowded and it was absolutely pumping. If only the moment of reverie wasn't being tarnished by the semi-human groans from the deck below. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, Paul's, Paul's back had not healed itself overnight. And so we carefully repositioned his pillows, allowing him the best view of us surfing the aqua blue barrels through his cabin portal. He could barely stand. Surfing, not even a remote possibility. And as the painkillers and bintangs wore off, he finally realised that he was a long way from home. As luck would have it, the tide was dropping throughout the morning and one of the star waves of the Mentawis lit up for us. Rifles coming to life for the first time in weeks. Of course, I had a shocker. I was woefully out of practice in real surf and couldn't seem to find to get my feet in the right place. Maybe, 
maybe if I just had a few practice surfs on that new board at home. Hey, Ryan's. That night, everybody was buzzing. Charts looking good for a solid run of swell. Everyone hit their bunks early, apart from Paul, who hadn't left his in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> the next day arrived, and we anchored off another idyllic and empty barreling ripe. After the breakfast refuel, though, the boat captain told me I had a phone call on the vast. A bit confused at first, my throat went dry. It was the call from home that nobody wanted, a family emergency, and I had to leave, trip over. Paul, in the meantime, had realised that he was months of physio away from a surf and only days away from requiring a new set of internal organs if he stayed. A few more calls and the boat set sail for a rendezvous point. Realising we'd have to travel light, we left boards with the boys to hopefully reunite with at a later date and gingerly transferred Paul onto what looked like some type of speedboat heading for an island with an alleged airstrip. As the boat left the leeward side of our island and encountered an open ocean swell for the first time, Paul's trip literally and physically hit a new low point. As the boat launched itself repeatedly over the wave peaks, it felt like it was going to snap in half. I was thinking, this is mental. But then I looked across at Paul, <laughs> I can honestly say that I've never seen anybody look in so much agony to this day. His pallor was beyond grey, beads of sweat running down his forehead and dripping off his nose. His jaw was set at a peculiar angle and the distant glaze to his eyes would scare even a priest. We finally made it to dry land. Financial aggravation followed after encountering the usual bureaucratic shenanigans that accompany most small island ticket ticketing offices. A few million rupee lighter, we made it to the airstrip and a cargo plane fitted out with deck chairs. <laughs> arriving in Jakarta was a relief and when the check-in staff looked at the condition of Paul they <laughs> kindly gave him a wheelchair which was probably what he needed before we even left Porth Call in hindsight <laughs> Paul finally managed to get on his flight back to the UK after not catching a single <laughs> mind you my tally wasn't too uh, wasn't much more either and as for the cursed step at board well I sold it with only three waves on the clock for a respectable 250 quid loss Anyone planning a trip to the Mentawis next year, count me and Paul in. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? Gary's... As much as that story, as much as I love, I mean, the, the detail in it is brilliant. Gary's written it really, really well. And there's a, there's a point in it I really, really love. And it's the the point at which they, they prop Paul up on pillows just so we can look. They're really kind in doing that. So you can look so at his portfolio. And this description really does it. It's it's the lefts and rights pouring across the reef. Bless him. Isn't that I, nice? um, I remember when that happened. It was quite kind of there was a lot of different versions of the story, you know. People when there was, you know, there was a blame culture in the group, apparently. That's it. Who stepped on the flip-flop? Well, I'm not gonna say, but apparently someone had drunk a little bit too much, and that was the ultimate cause of the accident. So oh, no. stepping on the flip-flop. Yeah, there was it was not a it was not a sober incident, apparently. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, I do remember that one. I was a it was a bit of a disaster. <laughs> Gary studied to be a journalist before going into his uh, current oh, line that, of work, and it shows, it. doesn't it? Because he is yeah. he is a brilliant writer. I I've I've <laughs> edited professional writers and and needed to do less tweaking than with gary to be honest so uh, yeah really nice work for that again i i i've um thought this often and it kind of it's put into practice with gary that surfers especially surfers that travel often like gary has are excellent storytellers off very very often excellent storytellers 
it's kind of they go in hand in hand together don't they surf travel often mm. excellent storyteller well i mean it's one of those things you know uh, as most places that we we aspire to go to um are pretty much off grid you know you're not going to have the kind of you know a, a netflix option of an evening um mm. so that the default evening activity is sit down with a beer you know and and just shoot the breeze really and tell stories that's so it's we're, we're quite well versed at, at at these kind of storytelling kind of antics anyway it's like the folklore on the campfire a thousand years ago isn't it exactly yeah. it goes with the culture doesn't it and the, and everybody sits around the, the, as you're like a youngster as a grom you sit around and listen to tales of 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 old and uh your kind of elders in the surf community regale you with these these funny stories and mm. i suppose that that talent and that ability gets passed down is bob still gonna stop him getting the marks um in terms of lost waves i mean again to bobify it uh it's got to be a four i think there were lost waves. Yeah, three, I'd say. But, i mean i mean i'd have to even i'm gonna up it to a 4.5 because although gary got three waves paul got zero waves and so i can't give a perfect score but I'm going to give it a 4.5 for Lost Waves. Hardship. I mean, they're on a luxury surf trip. However, family emergency, back out, can't surf. It's going to be up there again. I'm going to give and that. The boat fit is a bit of suffering, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's going to be a four. It's a four in my eyes. And Tail with Legs, it's written perfectly by Gary Lewis, uh, kind of an icon of Welsh surfing. I'm, I'm and giving it's it a big also people. sort of stood the test of time, you know. It's uh, it's it's quite a well-known story. It's good to actually finally sort of hear it from the horse's mouth. So. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that, Alex. There's there's quite a few stories that we come across in this episode that have that uh, they've they've been passed around over the years throughout the community, and this mm. is one of the ones that we've all heard before. Yeah. So um, I'm giving it a four and a half for Lost Waves. I'm giving it a four for Hardship. So we're up to eight and a half. And I'm giving it a four for tails, uh, tail with legs. I'm giving it a That's 12 a big and a old half. score. 12 and a half out of 15. You down with that, Al? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, All uh, right. it's the dream the dream trip gone wrong. It's everyone's kind of worst nightmare, isn't it, really? And it's not even like you're, you've been on the trip that, and haven't got waves. You've been on the trip, there's waves, and you can't surf. Bear in mind, it's your best ride that counts here. So, um yeah, that's obviously we're, we're assuming this eclipses the, the the van gone off the road in Morocco that Gary sent us in. Well, don't assume that. We'll we'll see it when we get to it. Yeah, true. Um, and uh, Wayne Edwards may well uh, be coming back with uh, with some lost waves to see if I he can get himself up because he's basically Wayne, Wayne's currently scoring on two waves instead of three, really, isn't he? So, so Gary takes. Uh, the yeah, top Wayne, of the Wayne Edwards there. is operating on an interference there. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a proper he's old school gonna, interference. He's going to come it, back in the rapid charge. I think I've got a feeling. Yeah, it's a paddling <laughs> interference, isn't it? Rather than one of those skilled little deliberate drop-in ones. Great okay. story, Rob. Well, great story, Gary. I should say. Uh, mm. What's next? Right. Well, we're staying in Indonesia for the third time in this show, but. This next one is a bit of a direction change, and I should warn listeners that it's going to be quite disturbing in places. For that reason, we've actually exempted it from the rating system because it's it's not quite right for that sort of purpose. Nevertheless, we've always promised that Crest that when we need to discuss it, the real world is absolutely on the table. We're not just here for the lighthearted banter. Tough issues also need our attention, and I think it's all too easy to think that travel, even when it goes wrong and we get to laugh about it, is about adventure and coming good in the end. 
The world can be a tough place sometimes, and this next story, told to Elliot by one of Wales's all-time top surfers, Mark Vaughan, is a startling reminder of the fact that our often hedonistic act of wave riding can quite quickly coexist with a very, very different backdrop altogether. Again, I do need to remind listeners of that warning, that you may find parts of this story distressing. Um, so I'm here with um, Channel Coast surfing legend Mark Vaughan, also known as uh, Vaughny to, to many people. Um, hi, Mark. Welcome to Crest. There you go, Elliot. Nice to uh, speak to you and see you, mate. Yeah, Vaughny is one of the more polite names I have, but um, yeah, I wanted to there keep are it a few clean. other ones. We're a PG, a PG rating, you know, we want to keep yeah. it keep it clean for the audience. Yeah, the clean ones tend to refer to the size of my nose, but there we go. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll live with it. <laughs> Now, um, obviously, we want to talk about uh, sort of the theme, this kind of surf trip disasters. Um, I know you've been uh, on more surf trips than most. Um, yeah. Now we're going to sort of, uh, is there any sort of, uh, sort of trips that stand out for you? I've been pretty lucky over the years. Um, you know, I haven't really had one of those like trips where, I mean, most surfers judge a, a good surf trip on, or a, a successful surf trip on what the waves are like. Um, so I haven't really had one of those, you know, absolute shockers where, you know, three week flat spell or something in, in Hawaii in January, you know, nothing like that. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously surf travels take you to some weird and wonderful places. And uh, I went to Bali in, I think it was year 2001. It was when mad cow disease was on. And uh, whilst Bali was well trodden by then, uh, I had it was my first trip to that part of Indo. I had been to Sumatra and the Mentawis four or five years earlier, so that was it was a new experience. Bali, in that sense, a few of the Lantuk lads are over there, and um, uh, I, Bali compared to Sumatra was really different. It was a bit of a culture shock in terms of the madness of Bali. Uh, I was well used to the traffic, uh, you know, Indonesian traffic is is unique. Uh, especially when you come from the UK, um, but we, yeah, it was. So I met up with Nathan. My, I guess my board's not arriving <laughs> at the very start of the trip would would be an indicator that things weren't going to go quite to plan. Never a good start, no. No. So uh, I was borrowing one of Nathan's like it was really weird rusties. I think it was like a four fin or something random trying to surf Ulus. But um, so that, you know the boards arrived after about four or five days, so it could have been it could have been worse. And um, yeah, it's good. You know, my brother was over there, um, all, all by chance. This, uh, my brother Kieran Thompson from Lantern, uh, Jamie Bateman, uh, Nathan, as I've said, uh, and Greg. Greg was over there with his uh, with Simone at the time. Uh, going back a few years, obviously. And uh, yeah, for those that don't know, that's Porthcall's um, legend, legendary uh, Greg Owen. Yeah, it's uh, and we, Greg and I were, you know, competing a lot of that time and traveling, and um, it was good to meet up with him because he was there with his, his missus of the time, and the same for me. I was with uh, my partner at the time, and uh, it was um, it was one of those weird things. I'd, I'd seen this footage years ago of uh, of, of binging um, from when a couple of you know, my brother and a few of the boys went, and I'd seen this footage and thought, oh, I gotta surf that place. That looks like a goofy footer's dream. And the whole time I was there, I was just like focused on scoring binging. And whilst we got, you know, some good ways here and there and really good um, Kuta Reef, which was fun, and airports, really want to surf binging. And the swell was forecast to be on. We all arranged to you know, meet up there the next day. And 
a lot of the Lantwick boys who were just, you know, single guys doing their own thing. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll meet you down there the next day. And um, I foolishly arranged to get involved with Greg the next day. I think we went out for dinner or something. I had some food. And uh, uh, next day I was like, yeah, Greg, meet you at like eight o'clock, you know, whip over to to Bingen. And Bingen then was just like, you know, it was still in the jungle. It was, it was, it wasn't like it is now with all the hotels and five-star hotels and stuff. So it was, whip over to Bingen in the morning. So I, I didn't know where Greg was staying. So I kind of arranged to meet him loosely uh, off Poppy's Lane 2 somewhere. And anyway, Greg being Greg, he he, he was hungry. He hadn't had his lettuce sandwiches. <laughs> he, he, he's, uh, yeah, so instead of getting away by eight, because Bingen works at like a set, you know, I think it's low to mid. Yeah, low to mid. So no sign of Greg. So I spent... I was wandering around. Of course, didn't have mobiles in those days, so it was just wandering around, bloody cooter, looking for Greg. Uh, gave up on him, and uh, off we, off we, and uh, uh, we, we went over to to bring in, and he kind of, we got there, we pulled up, and we got the car park at the top, and uh, it got as you got there, it was into like it was just the little Warren huts where people lived, and you know, it was a couple of the local guides as they were, and I didn't know where I was going; I hadn't been there before. Company. This, this lady, bless her, she was kind of helping out, she, as they are in Indo and Bali, especially at the time, it was very insistent that they escorted you down to the water's edge. And that was kind of the done thing anyway, because you gave the locals a couple of quid and they took you down. And so I had a few boards, bags, I, I had the uh, same partner at the time, Sophie was with me. And um, we, we meandered down this steep sort of hillside through all the <laughs> cut through the jungle i mean it was all the the canopy if you like and it was a two-foot pathway um so it, was, it was quite an exciting experience and then you dropped down into bing and you could see the ways and it, all the little warrens at the bottom and it was it, yeah, it was it was exciting and um, i could see it was pumping i, I remember nate seeing one of, one of the first ways i saw was of him just getting shacked and then laying the law down i was like my god i gotta get in there it was like five six foot perfect so ran in and i was aware that because of greg's antics um i was running late and uh, i could see the tide coming in and i was like ah oh, christ I better get in there quick so rushed in and uh had first wave had a little cover up and then saw a second section and pulled into that forgot that being in is an absolute raging closeout after the first sort of hundred yards. I got laced up the reef and cut really badly, so I'm sort of bleeding. The guys were telling me how good it was earlier. I fully missed it, and then it just literally went flat and stopped working. Like somebody just went, "That's it, that's your lot." So I was, I was feeling pretty down on the whole experience at that point because I was I had one wave, didn't literally didn't get another wave. Got out bleeding all over the place. I had something to eat, and um, uh, I. It was just like, oh, just let's just get out of here. Sophie wasn't, uh, it was with me, wasn't enjoying the, her experience of Bali particularly. Um, and was finding it difficult being a uh, lone female, I think, I'm in a male surfer's sort of playground. And um, so the lady that would escort us down and was kind of like our guide, as you as was the thing to do, they take you back up and again, you part with some money, and that was the thing. So she sort of grabbed one of my boards and started hammering off when, as we were starting to make a, a beeline to leave. And um, and a couple of the lads, my brother and the boys, like, you know, where are you meeting later? We'll go for a drink, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, yeah, range of time. And I must have been talking to them for a couple of minutes. And then um, uh, 
Sophie came down and said, look, you better come here quick because the, the lady tripped over and just thrown your board in the hedge or something. She's like, I don't, I don't really know what's going on. So I was like, okay. So went traipsing up. And when I got there, um, the, 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 the lady, I, I can only put her, it's difficult to categorize her age because obviously they have a very uh, strenuous life over there. And Mid 40s, early 50s. Just lying on the floor, uh, you know, sort of in agony. Uh, my board was about six foot into the sort of, say, hedges. <laughs> it's not really a hedge. It was just little palm trees and all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, I was, so I, I held her in my arms and just was looking at her. I was just stroking her head. I was like, you know, kind of like, what happened? What happened? Of course, my Indonesian and her English, there wasn't much conversation. I, yeah. Sophie was with me, just kind of said, I said to her, go and get some help, go and get some help. Now, we're probably 50 yards up the hill at this point. And, and I say it's, it's pretty dense sort of vegetation. Yeah, there's um, no sort of uh, ambulance service uh, to go to, is there, I suppose? Uh, oh, sort of private well, ambulances and that kind of thing over there. I mean, there was no mobiles, signals. I mean, perhaps we probably did have mobiles, but, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Um, yeah. And I was just holding this woman and then she just started foaming at the mouth and her eyes rolled back and i was like you know she literally died in my arms and um so that was easy <laughs> up until that point all the whole day had been fairly easy and then that, that then things went absolutely nuts and um i was, i'd i'd learned some first aid i was a first aider in work so i started to get prepped for doing cpr which was not easy on the pathway you were on uh on a quite a very steep pathway which was you know maximum sort of two foot wide and um uh, so lay it down the floor by the, all the time this had happened sophie was back with two french guys that were just walk happened to be walking up who'd been surfing so we we started the full you know we then buttoned a shirt and you know the french guy got in the breathing i was on the the, the full uh chest compressions and um and then all like all hell broke loose. Um, a couple of the Indonesian guys that were coming down from the village at the top of Bingen, just like freaking out, like, what were we doing? What was going on? Uh, and in minutes, there was just seemed like people were just coming out of the vegetation out of the jungle. And it was, it was just like, what? And um, yeah, people screaming and Indonesian shouting and going nuts at us. And we were just like, whoa, whoa, whoa you know, and, and then as we, we were trying to like, you know, get a doctor, an ambulance, all those kind of things. They were just, you know, as you said earlier, you know, there's, there was no, there was none of those things available. Yeah. Um, I guess with the language barrier, if they imagine you sort of came, came, you're walking along and all of a sudden you saw a bunch of foreign guys that you didn't know or recognize, you know, doing CPR on your mother or your, or your grandmother, you'd be a bit, uh, probably a bit sort of well, wondering what was going on, I guess. Yeah. And it, it was a frightening experience because um, the, the the husband of the of the woman that was that died in my arms literally came down and we were still in the sort of CPR resuscitation position and he just started lashing out at me and the French guys and we were just like whoa 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 we we're very fortunate uh, one of the big in surfing locals turned out I think his name was Jimmy uh, possibly spoke excellent English uh, and was. Without him, I don't know what would have happened because the, the, the one reality is was that we were in a in a foreign country. We didn't speak the language. We didn't understand the religion, uh, which is huge in, in in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, and we were very much we had no authorities to help us. Um, 
there was a whole, I mean, there was people, what seemed to be only a two foot area to house just sort of two or three people, you know, uh, making up their way up the path. We were, we were surrounded really quickly by, you know, 30, 40 people all, in, you know, up at the ravine. It was, it was just mental. People screaming, there was stuff going on. My mates, my, the Atlantic, nowhere to be seen. They absolutely left us for dust, like, so, you know, tucking into their ding tangs on the beach and, in, you know, uh, sort of patting each other on the back, yeah, of what was going on and, you know, congratulating themselves on their tubes. And uh, I was still bleeding. Um, I think we stood there for, must have been about 45 minutes. And then Jimmy, the if that was his name, the local surfer, took us up to the, he said, right, guys, this is what's going to happen now said you were with the woman so you have to pay your respects and you have to come up to the village and you stand with them uh, until i tell you you can go um and yeah there was a makeshift kind of bamboo stretcher came down the local people came and took the the, the, the lady away and um yeah we were we were then stood in the village you know either we'd only been barley about four days you know my skin wasn't ready <laughs> ready for a three hours of two three hours or whatever it was a, a brutal sun exposure so we're cooking um uh, uh, it was uh, the, there was a, some sort of ritual went on we stood there paid our respects and then jimmy sort of turned to us and said uh, right go and don't ever ever come back so i guess i, I was probably some sort of devil uh, i was perceived as but um holding you know we asked him you know what about an ambulance a doctor do you call someone he was like no that's it uh bizarre experience yeah bizarre experience. i mean that sort of seems very strange to us doesn't it because you know if anyone if that happened to to anyone in this country um or, or most you know sort of anyone with, it, with the sort of the developed healthcare system you know you you would need a doctor or, or someone qualified to even declare someone as uh as deceased so it's uh it, it's it's hard. It must be hard to to not know. You know, had she had, you know, a defibrillator or something like that, you know, would the outcome have been different? But uh... it was very difficult to understand. You know, I, I've done. I did enough first aid and and to sort of check her over first. I mean, she literally had her head in my arms uh, while she was groaning in pain, and and I was just sort of rubbing her head to say, you know, oh, we got some help. And Sophie, as I said, had gone off to go and get some help, and I was just left alone with this woman and. Says her eyes rolled back and she just started foaming at the mouth. I was like uh, trying to, in my mind, diagnose what had happened. And even to this day, I can picture it clear as day. And uh, and I'm just trying to figure whether maybe she was bitten by something, uh, a snake, a spider. Maybe she had a stroke, uh, a, a heart attack. I don't know. It's it's, it's just strange. But um, I, f- I felt incredibly vulnerable. After that point, we, we both did. Uh, it was a very sort of harrowing and uh, and bizarre experience. And we, the whole time we were in Bali, it was just that kind of ex- expectation that somebody would knock on the door and go, yeah. "You were there, right?" This, this, you know, explain what happened. That kind of inquest into why you were found with a dead person in your arms. <laughs> it yeah. was just, um, yeah, it, it, fright, frightening because, say, not understanding re- the religion or or, or the culture. Uh, or the language and I think that's one thing that I learned in terms of when you do travel to these places you, you've got to be and we've all do it at surface we end up in some random places you, you need to be aware of your surroundings do a bit of research about you know if you find yourself in a position like I did then 
um, you know, what happened? And I know not not too many moons after there was the Bali bombings and the, there was a few well-known British surfers called caught up in that. And yeah, of course, yeah, even worse experiences, a lot worse. And then, of course, the Boxing Day tsunami and all that. Uh, that is such a heavy story. That is really, really disturbing. It's uh, it's harrowing, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think a lot of surfers, you know, uh, because of the situations we put ourselves into, we, we do think we're invincible. Um, we often forget, you know, that some of the places that we go to are, are quite, are, you know, that people are a lot more vulnerable and they don't have the kind of infrastructure that we do and the healthcare. Um, you know, you imagine a situation like that happening at home and you've probably got a, de- um, you know, defibrillator within, you know, a few hundred meters away from you um, or at least a, a mobile phone to maybe call an ambulance. But, you know, you literally uh, it's that kind of almost feeling of helplessness you, you would have in that situation. that There's, there's literally nothing you can do, uh, which makes it which probably makes it even worse, you know, from a, if, if you're there and experiencing it, it's a, it's a helplessness that I can't can't really even imagine yeah you 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 say you can't imagine it and it, it, it the the point at which uh mark says that she died in my arms still kind of like stopped me in my tracks and like you say yeah it's it's almost impossible impossible to imagine it but um the the tragedy obviously it, well the tragedy is obvious in that i mean someone has died just doing an everyday task presumably going up the hill at Bingen. But in addition to that, I also felt like a just a pang of like, I don't know, it was like that fight or flight response. I felt danger for Mark and um, and Sophie at that point, stuck on the hillside, all these people screaming at them. And I thought, well, oh, clearly they had nothing to do with the death and what's going to come next. You just don't know. Do you know, we're, we're also, I think, in, in Western culture, we're quite kind of scared of death and facing it. And I know that, in Bali, you know, I've been to um, cremation ceremonies in Bali, uh, once on Lombongan Island and once in Ubud. And that kind of fear of death and the way that they sort of talk about death and, and deal with it is they're much more sort of, they look it in the eye, don't they? You know, and like, you know, I know in Mexico as well, you know, the, you've got the Dia de los Muertos, you know, and the way that they, they all sit around a grave there. And and I kind of almost wonder whether sometimes in our Western cultures we actually find it harder to cope with because of that. I think um, it's that kind of overwhelming faith, you know. Um, you know, in Mexico, there's that kind of uh, the the religiousness, you know, and like you said, the Dia de los Muertos, mm-hmm. you know, they they really do kind of um, they they believe in they you know they've got this kind of um, faith in God, and, you know, and and kind of combined mm-hmm. with the kind of um, you know the indigenous some of the indigenous religions in Mexico, and then. Likewise, in, in Bali, you know, they're, they're, they're very religious. Um, mm. And perhaps that provides some form of comfort um, to them in these situations. Whereas, you know, we, we live in a very sort of scientific kind of um, sort of world where, um, you know, even in that situation, you know, we, we, would, we wouldn't even make the call as to whether someone had died. You know, you'd have to, they'd have to yeah, go to a hospital and, and, and a medical professional would have to deem that they passed on. Yeah. But, um, in, you know, in that scenario, it was kind of, you know, the local, you know, the family and friends had mm. sort of almost made the call, really. Um, and how little interest the villagers take, it seems, in finding out a cause of death. Mm. Um, you know, it's just, it's happened and that's it. I mean, I, I guess, you know, in that in this situation, 
unfortunately, uh, you know, with that quest for information, it's not. It wouldn't change anything, you know, and and it wouldn't. Would it provide any comfort? Um, I think you know, perhaps you know, we are always looking for a, we're always looking for a scientific explanation. Whereas if you, I, I, I guess if you have that kind of faith, um, you know, you you put your trust in a in a higher power, and and maybe you're a little bit more accepting of of that. So you know, there's there's lots of different things at play. It's it's a wild tale, isn't it? And the thing that again, moving as hard as it is away from the tragedy of the death of you know, a local in, in Binging, putting myself in, in Mark's shoes. To think of it, it's, it's his fourth day in Bali, the first time he's ever been there. Fourth day in Bali, presumably oh, it's 20 odd years ago, he's mid-20s and someone dies in your arms. That's just enough to make you spin on your heels and board the next flight home, isn't it? Oh, I mean, uh, it's not something, I, I, it's funny when I was, when I was chatting to Mark about it previously, um, I mentioned that when I was when I was seventeen, um, we were on a family surf trip to to Lanzarote, and um, and, and, a, and a chap died. Um, we were at Famara, just you know, an average day, standard, you know, Lanzarote beach break, um, and uh, you know, and a chap just went out for his morning swim on Christmas Day and and drowned, and you know, and I pulled him out of the water, and we, you know, we all tried our best to resuscitate him, and but it's you know, it's one of those things, you know, I guess it it stays with you forever but i guess you know for me it triggered a kind of um a desire to want to maybe educate myself on how i could better deal with that situation you know at the time i was yeah, young, I was 17 i didn't really mm. know how to deal with it. i didn't know any have any real knowledge of cpr or life saving and as soon as i turned 18 i went and did my lifeguard qualification so um yeah. you know i think everything happens for a reason you know and whether you believe in in a god or not or if you just believe in kind of karma or, or, or whatever mm. i think you know we have these experiences it's how we it's how we act on them and how we learn from them that's the, that's the most important thing yeah and i think also what both lanzarote and uh, bali bali have in common there is the um fact that you know they're places that you go to for an escapist experience isn't it um mm. and we wouldn't be covering the true nature of travel if we didn't address the fact that things can go wrong in foreign lands and badly wrong travel uh, and why we revere it so much as an essential life experience uh, for surfers um is not just about enjoying the natural resources of a land more blessed than ours in terms of weather and waves uh, it's not about hitching a ride on adventurous coattails as if these countries were like a theme park or something and, and our money is just going to assure us a safe exit through the gift shop with a souvenir photo. Uh, you know, and that said, surf culture is something that we can share with the rest of the world though, isn't it? And uh, for that reason, the, the life of a traveller uh, does mean that you do have to take those lows and highs in your stride, um, you know, side by side really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. As surfers, we get the privilege often of truly interacting with the landscapes and cultures we visit, don't we? If it wasn't for the hunt for waves, we'd never find ourselves pitching up in these far-flung villages, staying with local families, sharing the peak with the people of such starkly different cultures to our own. It's the pursuit of waves and the joy of riding them, and later exchanging our memories and celebrations of the act, which brings us together, whatever background you're from. Food for thought there. With Elliot's last comment in mind, I think it's a good point to begin our recap of our previous guests' choices of tale. Because the first one we had from the writer and North Shore historian Andy Martin carried exactly that tone. Let's listen back to a quick reminder clip. 
But the one that, that really is historical to me, because it goes back to the 80s, this is a Californian guy. He's on a surf trip in Europe. Fine, but at one point he got on the wrong plane. Got off at Ber- in Berlin. And okay, this is the interesting thing. When the Berlin Wall was still intact, so he gets off and goes, oh, okay, well, I might as well go and check out the wall while I'm here, but was already pissed off. So gets to the wall, sees all these kind of border guards, you know, trying to stop East Germans coming over to the West, and shouts up at them. <clears throat> this, I believe, is historically uh, testified and then documented. <clears throat> uh, shouts up at them, man, you are bombed because you will never know what true surfing really is. And uh, the funny thing about that is that he was wrong, because Michael Scott Moore uh, has shown in his records about surfing, uh, and and he's half German, Michael Scott Moore, half German-American, that he actually interviewed some of the Berlin Wall border guards afterwards, and they turned out to be surfers. This is exactly what I was saying, isn't it? Um, it's funny to, to hear that story um, from Andy. Um, you know, we, I think we often think of, you know, uh, you know, seeing Germans at our, at our sort of, maybe not our local surf spots, but our kind of more frequented foreign surf spots is to us appears quite a, a new thing. But to think that, you know, pre-1990 when the Berlin Wall was still standing, that there was there was German border guards um shredding somewhere in the uh, in europe or, or the world is is quite a quite a novel kind of a piece of news to me so it's good good to good to learn that um andy of course didn't know at the time that he was talking that he was gonna possibly be entered into uh, the crest uh, bad surf trip awards but i know andy as a you know as a writer who's uh, you know and a journalist who's won awards and likes his work to be considered uh, in a competitive light uh, i'm sure he wouldn't want to be left out so uh sh- sh- should we do a little ratings for andy are we going to do it now or, or are we going to move on and hear them all and, and and do them at the end what do you reckon nah i think we should uh do it as we go along keep the scale fair yep yeah yep, fair right. point all right then okay uh tom you keep our tally then since you've got the pen and paper all right here it is uh all right then uh missed waves being a berlin wall guard guide uh, midpoint you've been missing a lot of waves there are they right you know kind of this story kind of falls outside the the lines of this scale, doesn't it? But we'll we'll do our best. Let's give it a two point five then. Right up. All right, uh, and then we've got um, hardship. Depends what side of the war you're on. Yeah, I think these yeah. guys are on the on the west side, aren't they? So they're yeah. kind of living the dream, driving BMWs. You know. All right. All right. Uh, so we'll give it a, music. a two. <laughs> punk yeah. rock music. A two. The Hoff there, man. All right, uh, and then uh, it's Meg's a good story. T- it is a tale with story. legs. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's one of those stories kind of... that will, will appear in like the, the footnotes of a surfer magazine article. So it's got definitely got legs. It, it right. could make a, a non kind of mainstream. Uh, uh, sorry, I mean a more mainstream uh, media outlet. This one for sure. It'd be interesting. So should we give it a four? Of... Yeah, for legs. I think so. Yeah. All right, and so that's going to get an eight point five. So uh, so Andy Martin is now uh, just edged above uh, Wayne Edwards. Although Wayne Edwards' Ooh. second run is still to to come. Very nice. Well, uh, well done, Andy. Place. Well done, Great. Andy. Next up, then, it's Rhino Thomas, and here's what he had to say. I've <laughs> always been pretty uh, lucky, really, when it comes to surf trips, pretty much. Um, actually, on the way to um, 
Bali last year, a bomb went off outside our hotel when in Bangkok, uh, which is kind of troublesome and pretty worrying. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so you, so you have good luck on trip trips, but you've dislocated your shoulder and been involved in a bombing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, in fact, and the year before we had a, we were coming back for out of Denpasar, uh, flying back to Dubai, and we had a fire on the airplane, which was pretty bad as well. I'd say that this demonstrates again to the listener a, a, a kind of a, a facet of Rhino's personality is that he's he's rather laid back in that, <laughs> despite despite having a, a dislocation. Been involved in a terrorist incident and uh, a fire on board a moving plane. He's not had any any problems on surf trips. <laughs> no, and then, but I tell you what the cool one was. We were in Bali uh, last year. We had uh, we had a, I think we had about four or five earthquakes as well, which was uh, which was a, which, which was a new one for me. But it, that was that was really interesting, good fun. I wish you could have included the tale of Tom Curran writing him a song as Rhino's entry. <laughs> well, we uh, we thought about it, but no. It has to be a surf trip nightmare. Yeah, keeping the field level. What do you reckon then? Uh, this this did cause quite a lot of amusement in the week, you know, in the week that it was out, didn't it? I don't know which bit is his entry. It's like all of them. I, I love <laughs> how kind of sort of blasé he is about, you know, the fact that the yeah, yeah. engine blew up on the plane. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, but and that happened. Oh, well, you know? that's right. I, I'm going to go backwards with this one. So I'm, I'm going to work backwards from tail with legs. And it's definitely got legs because there's a terrorist incident. There's a plane <laughs> on right. fire. It's earthquakes, so I'm gonna give it. I'm I'm going tops. I'm going as high as we can go on the Bob scale. It's four and a half, four point five. Four point five. All right. The legs. Oh, the legs. Fair enough. Yeah. Hardship. Hardship. Luxury surf trip. Doesn't yeah, sound like he had. Doesn't sound they? like it impacted the trip in any way. Um, um, and and he's nice. done himself out on the hardship. He's actually talked the hardship down. So he's yeah. a one, isn't he, for hardship? Mm. All right. Ryan and, knows uh, how to travel. Lost waves, none of them costing waves. Zero. Zero, zero for lost waves. No, you couldn't do does the Bob scale have zero? Yeah, Bob scale works from the, the kind of the thinking that everything is a zero. <laughs> okay. So I remember, dad, comes I remember dad scoring me in a contest once. He was judging because he didn't want to appear biased. I think he scored me a 0.5 for every wave, and I was in my yeah, head he I was ripping. He did, it was great. I think <laughs> I was in your heat. I got a 0.8 on one. We had a very funny uh judging scale story back in the day when um surfing wasn't quite as professional and, and competitors used to have to judge each other um, yeah. between heats uh, and, we're not talk- and we're talking the british championships uh no less it wasn't it wasn't some club competition but uh we'll leave that one for for another episode yeah so rhino he, he is straddling the bottom of the leaderboard now then uh oh. guys on, on a five five point oh. five and i do know what i think it deserves higher than that but i mean the but scale is the criteria is the criteria the this is why elliot said spoken. do them as we go it's rhino's happy spoken. kind of happy-go-lucky kind of uh personality i just think you know nothing sounds bad he's the joel parkinson of surf telling story of surf storytelling yeah. because he makes it look too effortless yeah <laughs> anyway you you never know you never know uh, Emily Williams might uh, might have something to offer uh, commensurate with Rhinos in terms mm. of score. Who knows? I don't want to influence it, but uh, here's Emily Williams. I think the worst one, we went to Sri Lanka and we got there and our luggage didn't get there, but it got there next day. So apart from that, not had any, oh, any bad you... surf. No, I know. I've been you really lucky. you got scratch. you got plenty yeah. of time. Yeah, yeah, you're young. You're young. (laughs) You've got nightmare surf trips ahead of you. Uh, Like we said, she's young, isn't she? She's just she's had it too easy there. 
I, uh, I, I think on the previous episode when we had Emily on and she, she informed us that the worst she's had was um, the delayed luggage that I scoffed. Yeah. And I make no apologies for that. No. And, uh, you know, she, she's, she's got time ahead of her to, to come back stronger in a future year. I think what that's I, what I said at the time. I said, you've yeah. got time, Emily. <laughs> what I've got to say here, right? I, I've had it happen to me quite a few times, right? And one time uh, in Bali, my luggage didn't turn up. And it was actually a really, really nice convenience because I got to like do all that taxi stuff to my hotel without having to carry my surfboards. And then I woke up in the morning and they were there at breakfast. It was great. <laughs> so I, I think that might even be negative points. It's happened to me actually more times on the way home than on the way out. And Which is when brilliant. it happens, it's amazing. You get to the airport the other side and, and then two days later, some lovely courier delivers your heavy board bag to your door. With uh, all the wet points it's still stinking and soaking. And you don't really, you, you've had two weeks in Indo, you don't really care about surfing at that point. You know, you're back yeah. at home, rest bays, one foot and onshore. The last right. thing you want to do is open your board bags. So, so she is getting a zero on Lost Waves then, if, on the Bob scale? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. What about hardship? Oh, I know. Lost Waves, actually, there might be... There might be a one. No, she that. says she, have, she says they arrived the next day. Oh, but she may no, have missed the dawny. Oh, she may have missed the dawny. But who wants yeah, a dawny five, when you've got five. jet lag? We've got to give it something. The point jet lag dawny case... though is the be- is the, the the best thing about the first right. day. You know, I think it's yeah, a fair we'll point. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's give her a one then. Let's give her a, so at least she lands up with a full point then. Okay, yeah. give her a one. So she gets a one for lost waves. Hardship is that a zero, zero. on the Bob skill? Zero. Well, missing a wave though. Give her a 0.5 if she did miss a dawny. Well, that was for the lost waves. Yeah, but also it's hardship missing a dawny in it. Oh, no, it goes into the lost waves category. It's a zero. Bit of stress, <laughs> you know, in the it's airport. It's much like Emily. A 0.1. A 0.1. Okay, you're a point right. one. So she's on 1.1 and tails with legs. Yeah, this she's, got more, she's, told. she's got more to come. She's <laughs> got more to come. This isn't going to be right. the one that... 1.1. Oh, in 20 years' time. Oh, do you remember that time Emily Williams had her boards arrive? 12 hours okay, late. 1.1. I don't feel too bad about this because she has actually got more more Welsh titles no. than anyone else who's appeared as a full guest put together. Uh, you're counting as a presenter, Elliot, so she does keep that record. So the ultra-competitive Emily, who is used to lifting trophies and collecting silverware, can uh, lose at something once. Emily, you're bottom. Also, I think, I think Emily's got lots of trips in her. Yeah, she'll come back. She'll come back yeah. stronger. You know, post, you watch a couple of years now. Give her a year. We're like the NFL now. You know, she's going to get a first draft pick for next year and she'll be winning the Super Bowl within a year or two for bad trips. <laughs> okay, moving on. I enjoyed this one. Let's have a recap of Harry Cromwell, who had several, um, a few of which I'm, I may have witnessed myself, uh, but we've chosen this one as his entry. Abandoned, basically, with my board bag and a load of stuff. I managed to somehow, I think I got on a tube or a train to... Um, towards france and i know you you've been on a trip me blithy my french is rubbish right <laughs> so I'm, I'm there with my board bag and like my my like luggage and all and i get this french french um train station where they drop me off and and there's this tramp there trying to start a fight with me <laughs> and he, he does like In a french. run he does like a running headbutt at my chest <laughs> And uh, I kind of like push him off, and I'm like, "Oh man, I don't want no trouble. I'm no trouble." <laughs> it's just great. It's the way Harry tells that, isn't it? <laughs> it's like he's he actually he's enjoying telling you that, like he's almost enjoying it happening to him. But it is horrendous having like it's, someone try. Do you know what? It's the song in his voice. 
It's the song in his voice as he describes the running headbutt from the tramp. It's so good. This Next, is you know, he was running, he was doing a running headbutt at me, and I said, "No trouble, no trouble." And <laughs> that's want, Harry. No trouble. It's Harry all over. I've I, been in. I France can't with ever Harry see and he. So he funny. is a cheeky bugger, and he always has been. Because right? I remember Harry when he was like really, he was really small for his age. And, yeah, uh, he was tiny, wasn't he? He was super. Like, we, I was like 17, 18. I'd kind of grown to my as big as I never was ever going to get. And Harry was <laughs> tiny. And then all of a sudden, he was like this. He was like a full grown adult, but he was still to me was always you know little Harry. And he and he kind of and he always kept that personality, that kind of cheeky yeah. kind of. You could never be really too mad at him, you know. He was uh, yeah. But this tramp was mad at him, <laughs> <laughs> right? For no given reason. He, he's going to get a score for Lost Waves there as well, isn't he? Because he did, you know. I'm sure those those yeah, mates of his were out having you know their what? dawny. I think it's self-inflicted. It's lack yeah, of preparation. Still he gets points. He's trying Absol- out his best. No, that's there. what I'm saying. I think we should we should up him. Right, three for lost waves. Yes. Oh, mind you, when you think about Paul, only gets a four for losing every wave of an entire Mentawi's trip. That's he misses true. a dawny at Cabriton. Two, two and a half. Or two, two and a half. Yeah, I'll go for that. Two and a half. All right. Um, hardship. Yeah, a bit of it. Nah, well, you're in France. You're fine. But you're bro- in France, you're broadly fine, whatever the occasion. All right, 1.5. Yeah. Well, um, I mean... Legs. He could end up in the, uh, you know, in, in the in the Bastille. You don't really know these, you know... <laughs> the Bastille. <laughs> the, the gendarmerie. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the legs, it is a good one. Give, give it a three leg. for legs. Bit, I, legs. Up it, up it. Let's throw it. Where we, t- where we took away from him before, let's up it this one. All right, so three and a half, so that gives him a five, a 7.5. It's, it's the way he told it, the way that he told the story of the tramp charging him with his head and took it on the, yeah. well, literally took it on the chin, figuratively and literally. He told it with a song. All right. Three and a half. He's half a point behind Wayne Edwards then. Uh, so in he goes. Uh, and then, uh, finally, Luke Young. Now, I was here for this one, and it was horrible, although, uh, like a few of the others, uh, I don't know how it's going to rate in terms of lost waves because I actually think that this trip to the Hebrides was some of the best waves I've ever seen. Anyway, let's recap, Luke. So when we when we left Ullapool there, the on the ferry, you you know, we sort of trundled through the inner Hebrides, didn't we? And it was like a lake. And then as it went past the last of the inner Hebrides, it literally stepped yeah. off a very big cliff, didn't it? And like boof and it's coming over yeah. the front and yeah, and it was only I think it was you, me and Duff were left standing. I mean it, like the everybody, pretty much the whole boat was just evacuating their digestive tract weren't they it was just horrendous <laughs> like start you just and i'd actually had i think I, I think it might have been steve at carve rang me and said like oh you what are you doing have you not looked at the charts there's not gonna be any surface any other and then and then when this was going on he rang back and he'd obviously <laughs> looked at a different chart and said do you need a photographer <laughs> and I'm like, no it's all good we had one we had we had mark lumster didn't we rest in peace mark but the seasickness amongst the boys was that was horrendous yeah 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 there's there's nothing you can say about lost waves there um that's going to be a zero isn't it because uh, you know it, it was the surf was pumping on that trip so we'll give uh, we'll give luke a zero for that yeah well, especially considering the Hebrides are, are renowned for having lost waves because people go up there on trips and, and, and get scored. I, I mean, the, well, Elliot will testify to that. I actually know. I've never been to the Hebrides. I, I went to the oh, where Shetland, did you go? I went oh, to I the Shetland Islands. And, uh, did you? Yeah, it was a pretty crazy trip. I went with uh, a guy called Stuart Butler. Uh, oh yeah i'm gonna and try I, and get I, him on crest at some point yeah he's uh he i went to Colombia with him it was he's good at getting you into real scrapes 
Yeah, I mean, I mean he, I've been to the Orkneys with him actually as well, and he was saying, "I want to go to the Shetlands." In fact, he was saying, "Oh, I want to go to a better set of more extreme islands than this, and I think I'm going to take a better surfer next time." So uh, that must be where you came in. <laughs> well, it was it was actually the trip where I where um, I met Thurgol Smith came on the trip, um, and I also uh, uh, a guy that who is now one of my best mates um, and was one of Stu Butler's mates, um, a guy called Nick Sarl, who now lives in Pembrokeshire. That was oh, where yeah, I met I know, Nick, Nick Sarl. Yeah. So it was uh, it was a good trip from that point. It was a, but the uh, it was more the kind of uh, yeah the the trip ended up becoming more of a we were sort of exploring the pubs of the Shetland Islands rather than actually getting any <laughs> waves. Although the best surf that we had on that trip um, was when we got kicked out of the pub at eleven o'clock, and obviously being so far north, it was still light for a few hours. So we'd had a you know three or four hours of drinking, and, and in that time, a, a storm had kind of kicked up. And outside of the pub, there was this really kind of fun right-hand point break. So at 11 o'clock at night, pretty pretty drunk, to be honest, we all we all dove in and kind of had probably one of our best serves of the whole trip. So, uh, so yeah, it was kind of a, you know, even though it wasn't the, the most classic of waves, we uh, we definitely had some, mm. some fun out there. Sounds like a Stuart Butler trip through and through. That <laughs> How have we ended up trying to rate a Stuart Butler trip? Yeah, that's a... That's good. Yeah, we've got lost there, haven't we? Move it on. That's all right. Right, hardship on that Hebrides trip. Now, Tristan Jenkins, he he suffered. Yeah, I enjoyed extreme physical pain. That's a four for hardship, isn't it? Or three point eight. It's not quite full marks. Let's go three eight. Yeah, three point eight. Okay, and then um, in terms of the legs, uh, Luke tells it well. He does, and you know, as I said at the time, this is a story that I I grew up on. I suppose because of the the videos that you and math have good forced me to watch but it's a oh, story the, that yeah, we, the pumping waves which is why you yeah but it's a story that i was aware of as a grom yeah so okay. I, it's got it's got legs um let's go th- let's go three eight for that as well oh gosh you're making me do maths on the spot so that's Sorry. a 4.6 no it's not it's a 6.6 no it's a 7.6 <laughs> <No>. 3.8 <laughs> 7.6 two two three to six two eight to 16 it's a 7.6 here we are seven point. Oh, he's pipped harry cromwell by point one. Oh, getting competitive now in the middle part of this leaderboard. You hear my primary school, primary school teacher mental maths coming to the fore there. Yeah. So uh, are we lump, are we lumping guests, listeners, like Chuck all, all these tales just in together, one leaderboard for the lot, yeah? I Absolutely. reckon so. Um, why would they be any different? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Absolutely. that means at this point then, uh, we're uh, coming up to the end of part one. Uh, we're going to have a sort of overnight leaderboard then up until next week, are we? Yeah, do it. Here it is. Okay, uh, bottom of the leaderboard. Uh, oh, no, actually, you match of the day, you go top to bottom, don't you? Okay, so sitting at the top of the table on the overnight lead. I'll try and do my golf, like my Peter Alice voice or something. Shall I, you know, the top of the leaderboard here uh, at the end of uh, day one. Uh, it's Gary Lewis at 12.5. Andy Martin, 8.5. I can't do this voice for much longer. Uh, Wayne Edwards, uh, then uh, an 8 in third place. Uh, And then we've got Luke Young sitting in fourth overnight, 7.6, just ahead of Harry Cromwell, 7.5. And coming down to the bottom of the table, it's uh, Rhino Thomas with 5.5 and uh, Emily Williams with (laughs) 1.1. Do you know, I I was genuinely excited hearing that list. I had no idea what was going to be more to come. But that's, uh, that's great, Tom. Thanks. And well, that about brings us to the end of part one then what's the follow coming up in part two of crest surf nightmares special we'll be hearing whether or not the presenter's parents can contribute anything of commensurate quality to those of our guests and listeners we'll be hearing from abra own Gemma harris now of pembrokeshire 
who has a great tale involving one of this land's best-loved characters, Mark Splinter Griffiths. Can any of our listeners guess what that one might be? I'll be back in touch with Mark Vaughan and giving him a chance to submit something which is eligible for the leaderboard. And we'll also hear Porth calls Richard Stroud with a tale of being stranded in Chicama, Peru, the world's longest wave, as the spring 2020 lockdown began. All that, as well as the final awards and another pair of gems from Wayne Edwards in South Australia. How was that, boys? Yeah, great. Uh, you forgot to say thanks and goodbye, though, didn't you? Ah, okay. Well, thanks for listening and keep an eye out for part two next week. Bye. Bye. Heilvauer. <laughs>